Hey guys, I'm Jay. And I'm A. And you're listening to Recipe and ID. Hey guys, uh, thanks for tuning in. I'm Jay, and this is A, and we are here to bring you episode number two. So fun. Yes, we are quite excited to be continuing this adventure. Um, Before we get started, um, you're obviously listening to us on your favorite platform uh, for podcasting. Uh, but, uh, if you could go like us and review us on iTunes, it helps us get up in the ratings. Um, and that would be helpful. It gets other people to see our podcast on the suggested page and, uh, it would be really useful. You can also follow us on all of the social medias. Yeah, that's all the social medias. That's at recipe and ID. So it's the at sign recipe A N D I D. So it's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We also now have a TikTok, which is the same thing at recipe and ID. If that's if you want to watch any of any of the recipes that I'm making, uh, we might have a few little behind the scenes stuff too. Yes. Yeah, so uh, today's episode two. Uh, A is going to be continuing on, uh, like he mentioned in the last episode, he's going to talk about White Castle today. My case today is going to be the about the Herrera family and the uh, murder of Deputy Vernon Marconet. Ooh, that should be really interesting. Yes. Exciting. I've never even heard of this one, so. Uh, I hadn't read it, or read it, I hadn't heard of it until... I started researching. So, so, so like Jay said, um, and if you guys listened to our first episode, you know that last week we started with firsts. So, um, I did start with A and W root beer, which, uh, like I said, my preference is that A and W root beer was the first food chain in the United States. Um, like I said before, a lot of my research was limited to the United States. So, if any of our listeners out there are from outside of the country and have any other insights on other food chains that may have come beforehand or that have been around for a while, I would love to hear about them and I would love to do some research and understand them a little better. Um, So for those that don't know, my part of the podcast, we're going to go over food and kind of the, the societal complexities of food in our society. So um, this week, I'm going to talk about White Castle, primarily because that is what everyone believes is the first uh, true food chain in the United States. I hope that I've proven somebody wrong in their head or their beliefs, but if I didn't, that's fine. We'll talk about White Castle today, which is always good. I freaking love White Castle. <laughs> right. So uh, Jay is really excited to test this recipe that's at the end of this episode. So I do finish all my parts with a recipe. I hope that you you guys enjoyed the pulled pork recipe from last episode. Uh, we did post a video of me making it that week, and I did make a little sandwich. It was very tasty. So we will also be making a recipe for this one. I'm not going to tell you this one until the very end, though. This one's a really good one. But he's not wrong. I am extremely excited about it. <laughs> so... Uh, A&W was established in 1919. Um, White Castle was established in 1921 in Wichita, Kansas, um, which is actually very close to where A&W started, uh, Lolita, California. There's just Nevada in between the two of them. So they're actually relatively very close to each other. Okay. Though, I mean, obviously that's spatial. I mean, I think Kansas is bigger than the UK, so... 
Yeah. That's obviously based on where you're at. Um, but it was established in 1921, uh, and this is confirmed by White Castle. There are a few historians that are nitty gritty, and they say it wasn't. It was started in 1916, and the reason they say that is that White Castle's establishment and starting is kind of bizarre in the sense that the founder that White Castle establishes themselves as is Bill Ingram, who was actually just a real estate manager. So he just sold buildings and sold real estate. Um, the true actual founder, the one that I believe 100% is the founder of White Castle, is another man named Walter Anderson. And the reason that this, this date 1916 comes around is because Walter Anderson had established three very lucrative diners in 1916. So they were three different diners that he specifically ran. And they were run by him and all of his recipes were run through this diner. He was also the one that came up with the idea of the five cent burger, which everyone knows that's what White Castle is known for. They're little small five cent burgers, right? right. So to say that Bill Ingram is the founder is really kind of shady. Throwing some shade at someone there. But to play devil's advocate, doesn't that counteract your point of White Castle coming second? It because would. It he, would if if Anderson's three diners were part of the White Castle chain. They're uh, not. Okay. They were completely separate. They were separate okay. businesses. Gotcha. So, so no. neither of the, uh, none of the three ever were became White, White Castle. Castles. No, no. They were okay. three separate diner franchises. Bill Ingram kind of worked with Anderson to create the menu because he okay. needed somebody that had run a restaurant before to kind of get established. Gotcha. And I think that's kind of what they're saying. Like so, the, Bill Anderson. Bill Ingram. Walter Anderson. Sorry. Bill Ingram. Who went on to found White Castle. Is the one that's declared by Whack, White Castle as the founder. Right. Yes, but, I just said Whack, which I didn't mean to, so. But. <laughs> that's Whack. Um, but the recipe for the White Castle slider. Is, the, the famous White Castle slider. Is Walter Anderson. Is Walter Anderson. Yeah. Okay, cool. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's very interesting. But White Castle claims itself as being the founder as Bill Ingram. I mean, okay. they, they established that. And I mean, it could very well be that Anderson's like a subject matter expert that they brought into the process, which I guess is kind of fun, but we'll get into all that in a little bit. So um, the big part of all this that I kind of talked about during A&W is that because White Castle was kind of starting from nothing and they were one of the first franchises, there's a lot of firsts that they did. They established themselves because, and we'll get into this, there, there was just not the, the delivery systems that you needed to make White Castle a big thing. And I do want to note that White Castle is very heavily laden in the Midwest. Jay and I live in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about White Castle, we talk about like we've seen it everywhere. But I can guarantee there's probably people that are going to listen to our podcast that have never actually been to a White Castle. Uh, there might be people who have listened that never heard of White Castle. Yeah, right? Isn't that so funny? I will, and I'm going to be honest, you should try it. It's worth a taste. They're... Uh, I will be honest, I did not like White Castle as a kid. I very much grew into liking White Castle, but it might be one of those things that you may want to try later on. They're pretty tasty. I always loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so to kind of preface my whole story is that what people need to understand is that in 1906, a book called The Jungle came out, um, which if you've ever worked in the food industry, you've heard of the book called The Jungle. Most people nowadays have probably never read it because it was a very historical um established historical novel for the, the time period. So it doesn't really have a basis nowadays, but it was uh, an insight on the poor packaging procedures and sanitary business practices of meat packing. It's why like ground beef and ground turkey became super, super not common in marketplaces. A lot of people were relying on butchering their own meat because of how poorly they were seeing this thing happening. Okay. So 
it did feed into this insight that people didn't want to go to restaurants to buy this meat if it was being packaged from like buying from a grocer. Right. Right. So they had to get rid of that stigma about a brown ground beef. So how did they do that? Well, um, Ingram and Anderson worked uh, to establish the cleanliness of the restaurant. They were one of the first people to show the actual cooking process. So I think a lot of people back in the 90s remember that uh, if you ever lived through the 90s or the early 90s, you remember when Burger King and McDonald's were very like, you didn't see the kitchen. There was a door and a wall and you couldn't see into the kitchen what's going on. Well, that was kind of how restaurants were. Well, Ingram and Anderson established the idea that people need to see the kitchen. And in true diner fashion, if you've ever been to an actual diner, the flat top is literally right behind the bar. You can see the cook making your burger on the grill. You can see them grinding your meat right there. That's essentially what they did. They ground the the actual butchered uh meat that they got from a local butchery and ground it right there in front of you so you could see that you were using quality meat okay right it's so ins- I, I just this is so unfathomable to me i just can't get it um and then to avoid to to invoke the feeling of cleanliness the restaurants were small buildings with stainless steel interiors white outsides and all of their uniforms were white on white they required you to wear white on white on white everything was white and very clean it's the reason its name is white castle which i thought was very interesting the idea that you're going to live in a castle that is secure it has very like it gives you the mentality of being very secure and very regulated like you have a military there and then on top of that white meaning clean and cleanliness it like established it as a very clean institution which is interesting to me that's wildly interesting considering what i think most people consider white castle today to be oh agreed right like that they're attached to mcdonald or they're attached to gas stations well they're attached to gas stations and and typically sliders are 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 looked down upon oh they're not even considered a a standard of burger they are their own class at the lowest point. Agreed. No, 100%. So that's, that's extremely so interesting funny. that they, they started kind of off as started this... the point of, of fine craft burgers. Yeah. And on top of that entire process, they also were selling cheap fine crafted burgers. Right. These burgers were only five cents, which even in that day and age was very cheap. It's kind of like the dollar menu of its time yeah. was the five cent burger. Right. And these were sacks of burgers. I say it's a nickel for a burger, which is insane to me. Um, they worked to establish the cleanliness of the restaurants. They wanted to invoke the cleanliness on their on their process. Um, the, the company also began uh, publishing its own internal employee magazine, which is very interesting as well. So it was established in 1921. In 1925, it came out with this magazine that would be that would get to uh other employees to see it and the reason they did that was they wanted to um contribute to the company personnel like feeling that they were invested in the business they were working in so a lot of times these promotional announcements included like 25 year milestones retirements and similar items of interest like um arranged of the like the geographical areas like when they opened new businesses in certain areas you they knew about it there was right. a publishing a publication about it if you made it in the company for five years you were in the newsletter that everyone that was ever part of the system saw okay it really created this mentality of that you owned a part of the company without owning a part of the company right right and so i did talk about this a bit well on, and, and and i imagine it would make the employees feel valued and appreciated invested it really did yeah it really emotional investment not even i mean obviously not financial investment because they don't own any part of the company but yeah the emotional investment itself would push you to work and i think that was part of we we talked about it last week but white castle is not a franchise they don't sell out they don't sell out these these businesses they're they're every every white castle is owned by white castle it's not owned by some random person it's owned by white castle right so they had to create this 
I don't know, this relationship with their employees to make them feel like they were gratitude, that there was some kind of investment, investiture to what they were right. doing, right? Okay, so the company began to begin publishing these newsletters, and then the bulk materials were contributed by the company's personnel. It was really popular. So not only were the people inside the business, they then started having them posted to customers. You could read about employees that were doing these amazing things around where these businesses were popping up. Um, now, it's established itself very heavily in the Midwest. So Kansas, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky are the most heavily populated of White Castles, which is very interesting to me because where we live, we see it all the time. And I just assumed it was a regular staple, but it's when we get to the numbers, you'll see it's really honestly Well, and not. I, I actually assumed it was a regular staple in the way that McDonald's and all of them are. Yeah. But, and it really wasn't until uh, one of my best friends moved out to Arizona and mentioned that they didn't have one. Yeah. It's, and then, like, a year ago, Arizona built its first White Castle. Right. <laughs> so she was very happy. But I didn't realize it wasn't widespread yeah, until it was, it, even, like, maybe Two years it ago. surprised me until I did my research. I was really, really shocked, to yeah. be completely honest. Um, now, what I want everyone to kind of wrap your head around is that prior to this, there was literally no fast food. They did not exist. So these these companies that were trying to open up in other areas, if you wanted to have a standard menu, you had to provide the ingredients for that standard menu, right? If you wanted a certain a standard motif or standard style, like the uniforms, the paper hats, the smocks that you wore, the gloves that you wore, if you wanted it to be standard, you had to provide it, right? Otherwise, any Joe Schmo on the road could come in with a different white shirt that you didn't that that's not the white shirt we want you to be wearing, right? They could wear a different type of paper hat. They wanted consistency. They wanted to build that mentality that what they were establishing was an establishment, right? Right. So <laughs> this is where it kind of gets into this weird like process. So in 1932, Ingram started up the subsidiary of Paperlin Paperlin. I can't say this word. We're going to say what it is. It produces the hats and other paper materials used in White Castle. So it was a massive paper manufacturing facility that then distributed these paper materials for them to use because it didn't exist before this. And when did they do that? 1932. That's interesting because I know uh, like uh, McDonald's, I, I used to work at McDonald's. Yep. They moved into producing their own things because it was more financially responsible for them and it gave them the ability of quality control. And I thought and had been taught that they were the first ones to do it, but it seems like White Castle was, so, at least in the paper and like uniform style. So, product. and this is where it's very interesting. Remember that whole conversation we had yesterday about franchise, or not yesterday, last episode where we had. The conversation about franchises, right? Yeah. McDonald's was the first franchise to do that, which is why they can say it that uh, way. Okay. But legally, they were not the first right. restaurant to do it. To come up with White that Castle idea. was the first one to do. From everything I'm researching, White Castle was the first one to create their own standard paperland products. And to kind of preface this entire thing, this paperland company that they use provided mm -hmm. two other fast food restaurants that had begun mm. starting up at this time right. frame, right? Um, one of the other things that I kind of wanted to bring up, because this is also first first franchise, trademarking was not common. So restaurants that were called restaurants, they didn't have trademarks. You didn't have like the the trademarks you're seeing today, like McDonald's and Burger King, that have the little trademark or registered trademark after their names. Right. right? So when White Castle began began to get like really heavily popular, um, there were 
hundreds. And when I say hundreds, I mean, I looked it up. There was somewhere between 162 to 104 or 162 to 200 restaurants that stole the idea of White Castle and used their name or a version of their name to produce their own products. So what would end up happening is you'd have things like the White Clock or the White Cabin or the White Cap, right? Or My mind just went to the White Shack for some reason. Yeah, and things like that. <laughs> I mean, there were tons of different versions of it and yeah. they were very similar and they did exactly the same thing. So, I mean, think about it day and age today, right? You have like... Um, uh, TJ Maxx yeah. and Home Goods and AJ Wright. They're all the same umbrella company, so you can kind of find the same materials at each one, right. but depending on where your location is, you're not seeing those. Right. Well, that's what everyone started assuming. They assumed that this restaurant was part of White Castle, but they just didn't want to use the same name. They wanted to be something different or they wanted to do something different right. with it. Yeah, so it was just kind of insane. So that kind of... Uh, unlike A&W, which had a huge, huge increase in the 30s, White Castle had a more reserved one. It did kind of still expand, but their big, massive overhaul was yeah. in two processes, the paper distribution mm -hmm. and the steel distribution. Oh. So another company that was established was in 1934, they created the subsidiary of steel buildings that manufactured movable, prefabricated steel frame structures um, with enameled interiors and panels that could be assembled at restaurant sites. So essentially it was like your prefab shops that could be right. assembled into the set that you needed to do. There huh. are 17 other fast food restaurants that used the steel building company that is owned by White Castle and its oh. subsidiaries, which is so interesting to me. It is. Right. Well, in 1933, Anderson, the cook, officially sold his half of the company. He was out of it. Uh, it's thought that this was because Ingr of Ingram's insistent on closing two of their locations. Um, and the really sad part about that is that the one location that was being closed was Anderson's first location, the Wichita location in Kansas. Um, and really, truly, to be honest, they haven't really gotten their footing back in Kansas yeah. since the closing in 1938. That's unfortunate. Um, so it is unfortunate. Um, and unfortunately also it kind of, it damaged the relationship between Anderson and Ingram sure. pretty heavily. And I mean, you can understand that you yeah. opened this restaurant, you had put all your investments into it and then your partner's like, no, we have to close it. We're not making money. So, right. which is sad. And it, unfortunately it's their flagship location was the first one to close, uh, which is kind of sad. Um, unlike A&W and some of these other restaurants like McDonald's and Burger King, White Castle did try to branch out of the country. So in 1986, Japan, a Japan franchise uh, closed six, uh, which closed six years later. So it tried to open in Japan. It only lasted about six years and it closed. They really, uh, it never really took off. It wasn't really the thing. The fast food market in Japan is just not really the same as the United States. The fast, cheap food is not really recognized by them. They really do take appreciation of the amount of time it takes to make their food, which is why anybody that would look into that fast food market can see that it probably wouldn't work in that kind of structure. Yeah. Uh, in 1989, Malaysia opened seven restaurants with the goal of opening 20 uh, by the end of the year. There's no record of what happened with the Malaysian markets because generally, as I said before, these aren't franchises. But when you go international, you have to franchise. Many international companies have unions that you build into, which are built out of franchises. So they kind of had to franchise a bit for some of these. Um, all the establishments were closed by, the, by 1998. Um, now, in 2017, uh, there is a there was an open White Castle in China that is doing very well, and it's the only oh. outside of the United States White Castle that is currently operational outside of the United States. So, all attempts to enter the, enter the market in Canada and Mexico um, were limited in 2015 uh, by the release of the frozen slider. That's the only really market that they can get out into in those countries. Right. 
they just don't do well, unfortunately. And I and I'm not 100 percent sure why. Uh, I think probably because of the market, really, truly. It's yeah. not, it's not like it doesn't have a high market like you and I have talked about. It's very heavily invested in the, in the Midwest. So most people who live in the Midwest have seen it or know it. I think it's just not a known name. Like I think yeah. people just don't know what it is and it's just not marketable, especially when you have a, the same thing you can get from McDonald's or Burger King. But it's not the same thing. It's not. I know it's so tasty. Okay. So fun facts. I already said this one. White Castle is not a franchise, right? right. Uh, all the stores are corporately owned. The only one that is technically a franchise is the one that's in China. Okay. And it's because of the union requirements for China. Um, It was the first restaurant to run coupons in local magazines and newspapers. Uh, So essentially it was five burgers for 10 cents. It was one of the first restaurants to run coupons. Holy cow, that's a cheap burger. Right, I know. So quick. I mean, it's a cheap burger now. Yeah. It still was an inexpensive burger then, but not as inexpensive as it is now. It's still a pretty cheap burger. Um, it's been noted as the most influential burger of our time as it established itself as the first cheap and easily mass produced burger slash slider. Um, this is actually from a magazine of 2017. So it really was influential because it established the chain of command of how a franchise should function right. without actually being a franchise. I still just find it wildly interesting that it's the most influential burger of our time. And again, in the Midwest, it is considered the like garbage of the food industry right it's and so the fast food industry it is so funny right and most people when you tell them you're going to get white castle for dinner they're like oh, oh okay so you want to feel disgusting for the next three hours cool. right and it's widely considered to be hangover food oh yeah like, no 100 you get drunk at a party go get some sliders somebody sober drives to go get sliders <laughs> a grave case right right no the for 30 that- 30 30 burgers in a cardboard box for 20 bucks or something crazy I love it. Like so that. feeding off that one. So if you guys don't know, the sliders come in small little boxes. So essentially they were wrapped for the first 10 years of operation. They were wrapped burgers. So just like you would have any burger at any like McDonald's or Joe Schmo restaurant, they wrap it in paper. Well, the sliders buns are steamed and the burgers themselves are like quick grilled. Mm-hmm. So the buns don't hold up to wrapping. That's what makes them so good. Oh, they're so good. Um, and the buns didn't hold up to that quick kind of wrapping, so they put them in the boxes. That's why they have these little tiny baby slider boxes they go into. The boxes that look like castles. They do, and they advertise those as building blocks for small children, which is I both mean, disgusting. You, you can't. <laughs> I mean, I use them as building blocks every time we get White Castle because I can't eat any less than 10 sliders in a sitting. Um, so I build little towers, but... I would not give them to children because the bun is so steamed that it leaves remnants and things. Yeah, inside of it. And then you have the, quote, onion, quote, bits that are in there. Yeah, no, that's a mess. Yeah, it is a mess. And But I will say that the original original casings that they had were much more embellished. They were much more... Uh, like kid oh I'm sure kid size so they're kind of cool but it was how they advertised them in magazines and newspapers it was very funny that is fun Um, so also another kind of fun thing is that Anderson is cited as the inventor of the hamburger bun the inventor of the slider is the inventor of the hamburger bun it's mind blowing I know I can't even wrap my head around it that was my mind blowing (laughs) that's really interesting I did not I I mean, I don't know a lot of this information because not many people sit down and research fast food chains. But even still, that's wildly interesting. It is wildly interesting. So just like we talked about with A&W, they have 625 locations. So just to give you an estimate, 
White Castle only has 377 locations, uh, and they cross 13 states. So the current state lineup that has um, these fast food restaurants currently are Chicago, Cincinnati, Columbus, Dayton, Detroit, Indianapolis, Las Vegas, Louisville, Lexington, Minnesota, specifically St. Paul, Nashville, New York um, State, and then New York City, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Phoenix, and St. Louis. Louisville and Columbus are their two mass manufacturing facilities that make the steel and the paper goods, and they're their kind of central locations. So, yeah. Um, so, most popular item on their menu, you can guess it. It's their slider. Fish nibblers. Oh, the slider. The okay. slider. Yeah, the original slider. Uh, and the slider with cheese, which is very popular as well, though no, I will tell you. That's a travesty. Yeah, Jay is not happy with the chat. Um, they were one of the first burger restaurants to allow optionable um, burgers, which people don't realize. Like, you either got standalone, you remove things, but you couldn't add things to it. It was not very common. Um, some up- notable upgrades that White Castle was the first ones to do. Um, jalapeno cheese uh, and then ketchup and mustard which is very interesting because they don't mm. they don't come standard they usually just no. you guys it's a bun it's their grilled onions the burger and the bottom bun and that's what you got and a pickle and a pickle yeah there is a pickle comes with a yep. single pickle and then they do have a sauce called the everything sauce so if you ever go to white castle and you want ketchup and mustard just say everything sauce on it it is delicious it's like this weird combination of ketchup and mustard that is mm, so good uh, and then what do you think the second most popular item on their menu is? Fish nibblers. It's not fish nibblers. Though it is a very popular item. It's like number four. I would say nowadays probably their chicken rings. They That is the second one. And the yep. chicken ring slider. They do have a chicken ring slider. They also have a chicken breast slider, just so you know. Uh, chicken rings are made from white meat and dark meat. Chicken breast is just the chicken breast slider. Their chicken rings are superior. Um, their number one most popular item in 2018. What do you think it was? 2018? 2019, I'm sorry. 2019. Um, I have no idea. The chicken and waffle slider. I didn't know that, but I'm not surprised. I'm not either. Some <laughs> some other really notable, interesting chicken and waffles th- made a big. It did have a come huge out in the. T- I'm not even gonna call it a comeback because it was never gone. widely popular. But yeah, that made a big coming out in that. The chicken and waffle slider was one, probably one of the other popular. Uh, a chicken parmesan slider. Loaded French fries. Um, you can also, just so you know, you can add bacon crumbles to literally everything on the menu. There's not a limit to what you can put bacon crumbles on, hmm. which is very. If I wasn't such a purist, I'd put it on my burgers. If yeah, but that's I'm you. A purist. So yeah, that's you. You order them straight <laughs> up, nothing else. All right, so I'm going to get into the recipe part of our talk now. So yes. for those you have not heard of this, um, there's a thing called White Castle Slider Stuffing. It is life-changing. It is a life-changing experience, I'll warn you. Um, so like I said before, a lot of my recipes I'm going to be giving to you are either going to be a hodgepodge of recipes that I've already made or that I've looked up and researched. And I think that these add-ons or differences would make the difference on your burger or your stuffing or your pulled pork um so this is really our recipe it's jay and i's actually thanksgiving recipe um not specifically for the white castle sliders but there is some small embellishments i did add to them that made our stuffing so much better we did not invent this we found the recipe online and then we tweaked it to make it ours correct so that's good good response there thank you i just i don't want somebody coming at us saying you didn't invent it i invented it or we didn't invent it we didn't invent this i swear perfect i promise you i I mean we put our own uh, yeah with the stuff okay so 
You start off with 10 to 12 White Castle sliders. You specifically have to request no pickles. All right. You should probably order 15 because you'll want to eat some of them. Agreed. You're going to want some. Now, then you also need a a cup and a half of celery diced, a cup and a half of carrots diced, and then a half cup of white onions diced. I know the sliders already have onions on them. I'm going to warn you that most of those onions are going to disappear when you make them into the stuffing because they're just going to dissolve because they're already cooked. They're essentially already kind of very, very soft. They will. They're already tiny. They're, yeah, they're already very tiny. Yeah. Um, four tablespoons of butter. That's a half a stick. Okay. One and one fourth teaspoon of thyme. One and one half teaspoon of sage. Three fourths teaspoon of black pepper. One or a fourth cup of chicken broth, depending on if you're going to stuff it in the bird or you're going to make it in a pan. And the very last thing you need is three-fourths teaspoon of salt. Okay. Now we're going to get into the instructions. So first, in a large saute pan, you're going to add onions, carrots, and celery. Um, what is onions, carrots, and celery called, Jay, when you cook it in a pan? Mirepoix. Mirepoix, right? It's the like the holy grail of French cooking. Uh, and then, of course, your butter. To medium heat, let your butter, celery, and carrots kind of mingle and have fun together. They're going to get very soft. Along with this, you're going to add a fourth teaspoon of salt, a fourth teaspoon pepper, fourth teaspoon thyme, and a half teaspoon of sage. What that's going to leave you with is your one teaspoons of everything left, right? That's your little extras. Um, and let the veggies mingle. They're going to get soft. So uh, now cook it on sa saute on medium heat until the butter is completely melted. Veggies are fork soft and onions have become translucent. You do not want to overcook these people. They're going to cook again in the oven. So please don't worry about it. If your carrots aren't fully soft yet, they're going to go in the oven anyway. So don't stress it out too much. Okay. Now. In a large mixing bowl, you're going to tear apart your sliders into, I say, roughly about quarter size pieces. Nickel, dime are a little too tiny for what we need them to, about the size of a quarter. Uh, you can use a knife, but what fun is that? Tear it up with your hands. It's way more fun. Okay. Now, combine the sauteed veggies and the sliders into a mixing bowl. So uh, mix them all together. Coat everything in one cup of chicken broth uh, and toss well until the liquid is pretty much absorbed. You should have some liquid over it that you can that you can pour over the top when it goes into its pan. Um, I do the, in this section. I pour a tablespoon at a time, so don't do too much. Um, because if you add too much, you're going to get the top all wet and the bottom part won't get wet. So make sure you toss it in small amounts at a time. And most of the time, I know when we make it, the, the sliders themselves, like Andrew said, the, the, the buns are already steamed. The onions are already cooked. So it's already fairly soft. So you don't need a lot of that liquid to soften it up. No, it's this is really just um, to get the buns and the meat and everything kind of gentle and kind of incorporated together. So... Uh, when you're when you're doing this whole and then you're going to add the rest of your seasoning so that rest of your seasoning is going to go in at that point uh and then with your with your liquid and then add to a 9 by 12 casserole dish and bake at 350 for 35 minutes or until your top gets crispy and brown and your bottom part is still soft and squishy like everyone likes their stuffing to be now if you are preparing this in a bird, you're going to follow all the same instructions that I gave you from one through four. But before you add and you combine your uh, sauteed veggies into it, you're going to tear everything up and mix it all together. But you're only going to use a fourth of the chicken broth. If you use all your chicken broth, like your full cup, your, your stuffing is going to get very, very soggy because there is liquid from the bird. It's going to end up in it. I am not a bird stuffing person. But if you are, go right ahead. I know it's tasty and it is delicious. I'm a bird stuffing person with traditional stuffing, but White Castle stuffing has no, to be no. separate, right? It just has to be separate. It's its own. Yeah. 
dream. Yeah. So I will say it makes about nine cups, enough for about 10 to 12 pounds, pound, a 10 to 12 pound turkey. Um, now allow one slider for each pound of turkey, which will be equal to about three fourths cup of stuffing per pound. So if you're making a much larger bird, make sure you buy more sliders. Okay. Now, remember, keep your belly full because this is going to do that for you. I promise yes. you. It is delicious. Right. So Jay and I have had the stuffing before. What are you, Do you like it? Are you, do you like the stuffing? I know you love stuffing in general, so I'm probably asking the wrong person. I mean, I feel like I've already given this opinion like 12 times throughout this whole thing. <laughs> but yes, I love this stuff. No, I really, this this stuffing was a game changer. Actually, my sister's mother-in-law had brought it to a Thanksgiving I had, I think even like a year or two before we met. Uh, and I had it for the first time, and it, it truly was life-changing. I am one of those weird people who loves White Castle at any time as much anytime anywhere um and a common thing with white castle people their bellies don't react great to it a lot of the times uh, <laughs> there's a reason it's called a slider but yes, we're not gonna get i'm not gonna get too far into that <laughs> but the reason for that actually and i don't know if you know this andrew but uh growing up in the midwest i of course figured this out because i'm so obsessed with white castle um the onions that are on your burger are not actually onion uh it's cabbage so that they've diced up and then use onion powder on nowadays i don't i'm sure originally it was onions it but. was and to get to kind of elaborate on it a bit it is still onions mm -hmm. they are dehydrated onions and cabbage bits so what they do is they do take onions it's about a three to one ratio so three-fourths onion to one-fourth cabbage they add it together and they mix it together and they dehydrate it now the ratio that you're going to get on your burger could be different depending on what they do and how they hydrate them because for those that don't know cabbage floats and onions do not especially when you're rehydrating them they take a bit so if you're scooping from the bottom and you're not draining it properly you're going to get a ton of cabbage on the beginning ones and bad ones on the bottom in general there was a time when they only used cabbage with onion water seasoning that was for a small time i think it was like 10 years of marketing they did do that for a bit it's not like i said these res restaurants don't like to give away their recipes very well so that this kind of stuff is only if you've worked there or you know what they do do you really kind of get this information um so they don't really say that why they stopped doing or why they changed right. back a general understanding is that there, for those that don't know, in the mid-90s and early 80s, there was an onion shortage. So we had a small, uh, it wasn't a drought, but it didn't allow our mass quantities of, of onions to be produced that they were. So because of the raising market, they changed the ratio to be more um, cabbage than onion. I will say in the 2000s time, it did get back to being its 3-1 ratio, but we don't really know. We, I mean, it, it, they really just send you a bag and you rehydrate it. Right. <laughs> so. Um but my my point in saying that mentioning that was that they get a bad rap because typically um if you are a person who eats cabbage or knows or, or has enjoyed cabbage you know that cabbage can make you very gassy and it does terrible not fun things to your belly it's very similar to prunes in that regard it, yes it helps things and i think flow. that's where um white castle got uh <laughs> a less than desirable uh reputation agreed but i have an iron stomach so i enjoy white oh, castle all the time so much anytime and i do not time. have well i guess i have an iron stomach too but you not in the know. same <laughs> do now but yeah so no. that is the cider recipe i hope you guys get a chance to try it like i said i will be posting some of my recipes and how i make them on tiktok so if you want to follow us on tiktok and see how we made it and see how we enjoy it i'd be 
so happy for you to check us out. And don't forget that you can find all of A's recipes on our website, www.recipeandid.com. There is a recipes tab, and they're all there as PDFs, so you could print them out and put them in your own cookbook. You can use them from your iPad, however you do your cooking. And I do add a few small tips and tricks to all my recipes just because being a home cook, I do know the kind of preface that kind of comes from working with a recipe that you don't know. So I do try to give you guys some help there as well. So, but we're done with my part. We're going to move on to our serial killers slash investigation slash crime slash true crime. Yeah. True crime. That's the word I'm looking for. The thing that I have no idea about. Yep. Excellent. All right, so uh, today in our true crime section, um, I'm going to be talking about a fallen police officer and a family of killers. Ooh, this is going to be fun. I don't know if fun is the word I would That's use. probably the wrong word. In my mind, it's fun because I'm learning something which I do thoroughly enjoy. Yes. Uh, so in the mid-afternoon of June 30th, 1988. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> It's the day I was born. Uh, that's how I started my research. And I was like, well, let's see. Because I, I couldn't narrow anything down. So I was like, oh, let's look and see what happened on my birthday. Um, Awkward. And I found a horrible tragedy that happened on my birthday. Oh, okay, cool. Um, William Diaz Herrera Sr., uh, who moving forward, I'm going to be talking about as, and refer to him as Sr. Uh, and his sons, William Jr., who I'm going to be calling Jr., uh, age 19, Michael Herrera, age 18, and Ruben, 15, along with Michael's girlfriend, Mary, uh, went to a desert area in southwest Phoenix, Arizona, to drink beer and wine, talk, and listen to music. Um, so this is so, dad and three boys and a girlfriend? Correct. Gotcha. Um, so the the thing to remember is that Junior is the oldest of the children. Gotcha. Then Michael. Then And Ruben. then Ruben. Gotcha. Michael. Our junior Michael and Ruben. Yes, Ruben being 15. Very young. God, so young. So they had taken two vehicles, uh, one being a yellow duster. I don't know what a duster is, but we looked it up. So It's a like, um, it's like a muscle car. Yeah. Okay. Um, from like, usually the 1970s is when that gotcha. style was popular. Makes sense. Uh, okay. And then the other being a dark blue Chevy pickup. Um, after buying the beer and wine, they drove to a relatively isolated dirt road in southwest Phoenix, where they stopped to allow the duster, which had begun to overheat, to cool down. Okay. 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 Uh, the vehicles were nosed in some trees and shrubbery on the shoulder of a dirt road. I love um, that word. Shrubbery. Uh, along a narrow irrigation canal. Uh, Once parked, they began drinking, listening to music, and talking. Uh, Note that with the exception of William Sr., each of them was was under the age of 21. Okay. So Junior, Ruben, and... No, Junior, Michael, and Ruben were all under 21. What was the girlfriend? Mary. 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 And I'm not sure of her age. Gotcha. But she was one of their girlfriends. But it was noted... Uh, she was Michael's girlfriend. Oh, the youngest. No, the youngest is Ruben. Oh, Ruben, I'm sorry. I'm getting them all confused. Ruben, Michael. Oh, so like 15 maybe? Maybe? Uh, I don't know. He was 18. The youngest Michael, was Ruben, who oh was 15. Gosh, not Ruben. Michael, the middle one, 18. Correct. Uh, so an hour passed without instant incident before a motorist, uh, seeing the positioning of the two vehicles, uh, and believing that one had run the other off the road, uh, went to reach the police. 
Oh, oh, gotcha. That makes sense. So in my head, I'm like, cool. So we got out a cell phone and called the police. And then I remembered this was the year I was born and there's no such thing as a cell phone. Uh, so he had to drive to either you a mean, pay phone you, there or There weren't a car local. phones? No. And not everyone had a car phone? Correct. Uh, so he had to drive somewhere to get the that, of course. Uh, to get to the get police. police officers. Um, shortly after driving by the vehicles and on his way, the motorist noticed a fully marked uh, sheriff's car coming in his direction. Oh. Uh, so he flagged down uh, Sheriff's Deputy Vernon Marconet and told him about the possible accident and directed Deputy Sheriff Marconet to the vehicles. Um, and the deputy immediately proceeded to the scene. That's so strange that they would start drinking literally at the side of a road. Like, it the middle what never mind just keep going alcohol does not play a strong factor in this but is a strong factor in their life and lifestyle oh okay um it's later stated that uh junior the oldest of the three boys uh is an alcoholic at the age of 19 so it, it alcohol was prevalent prevalent okay it's just I for me it's such a weird area to be I to don't start disagree drink. like what, at all why would you start uh, why not no um so when the well, deputy I guess if you're an alcoholic you're gonna start drinking wherever you can right um and they were going there to chill out they were listening to music they were talking yeah but that wasn't where they, they that wasn't where they were supposed out. to be they just they pulled off the road to cool down the one car True. so it wasn't like their end point but while they're waiting oh gotcha might you know, as well celebrate. You know, like drink a claw in the back seat. You know. Like you do. Uh, no, no, we don't. <laughs> no, no, we don't. Um, anyway, uh, when the deputy arrived at the Harris's location, um, he radioed that he had encountered a blue Chevy pickup and a yellow Plymouth Duster, uh, like I mentioned, and approximately four males. Uh, after radioing this, radioing this in um, and parking his car behind the two vehicles, so he made sure to park to where the two vehicles couldn't get out easily. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, he approached the family. I'm sorry. Uh, Deputy Marcat quoted in court files as a big, strong man dressed in full uniform, uh, got out of his car, and he approached the family and asked if there was a problem. Uh, Michael, the middle son, responded that the duster had overheated. The deputy then asked everyone for identification. Reuben, the youngest son, produced an ID, uh, but Michael told the deputy that he had no ID because his wallet had been stolen. Junior had said that he lost his ID, and when the deputy asked the senior for an ID, senior became belligerent and stated that he knew the law and that he had done nothing wrong and that he, quote, wasn't going to show any fucking ID. Oh, yeah. oh that's, a, that's a choice. Yeah. So the deputy responded that if senior refused to show his ID, he would have to book senior. Just so um, everyone knows, as you one are, does, you are required to show your license to a police officer. I appreciate that people think you don't have to show them, but you kind of—it's your identification. Um, I'm not going to get into that. No, that's but, probably not true. Uh, the deputy then walked Senior over to their patrol car and placed him in the back seat. So, okay, like you do, Senior's now in the back of the patrol car, and oh. the other three boys are there, and Mary's there. Okay. 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 Gotcha. Um, so wait, but then if neither one of them have an ID, how are they driving? They're driving without an ID. You don't have to have an ID in your hand to start a car. No, they shouldn't be driving. I meant like, but like from a police officer standpoint, who's going to drive the vehicle? Correct. <laughs> Correct. Gotcha. Okay. I see where this is going now. Okay. 
So after placing Senior in his patrol car, W. Markinet uh, told Reuben to stand close to the back of the sheriff's car, and he did so, Reuben being the youngest. youngest okay. uh, Deputy Markinet next asked Mary, who was sitting in the pickup for the vehicle's registration. Uh, she then leaned over and began to look through the glove compartment for it. Uh, three witnesses testified as to what happened next. Those three witnesses being Reuben, Mary, and Michael, the middle brother. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So they corroborated each other's stories, essentially. Essentially, yes. Okay. In the beginning. Uh, the first was Reuben, the youngest, and he testified that the deputy went around to the driver's side of the duster and took the keys out of the ignition. Then he went to the back of the duster, opened the trunk, looked in, found nothing weird. So he closed the trunk. He checked the back of the truck as well and found nothing odd either. At his trial, Michael testified that on his own behalf, that while Deputy Marconette was talking with Mary, Junior, the oldest brother, told Michael that he's going to fight with Deputy Marconette. Uh, Michael also testified that Junior was, quote, always resisting with cops and stuff. By his own admission, Junior was worried about being arrested and jailed because he had, quote, tickets and stuff, end quote, and had jumped his Texas probation on burglary charges. Oh. He also admitted that they were originally just going to overpower Deputy Marconet and handcuff him so they could get away. Uh, Junior began to argue with the deputy. Junior's argument with the deputy, deputy quickly escalated into a scuffle, and Junior grabbed the deputy and hit him a few times. Um, I'm assuming that referred to punching him a couple times. Yeah. Um, while this was going on, Senior yelled to Reuben, the youngest brother, both in Spanish and English, to open the door of the sheriff's car. Reuben made sure the deputy wasn't looking and then opened the back door on the passenger's side of the sheriff's car and let Senior out, who then joined the fray and began kneeing or kicking the deputy in the groin and cussing at him. At Junior's urging, the older brother, Michael wrestled the deputy's revolver away from him and ordered him two or three times to get down on the ground. Junior, the older brother, then threw the deputy's portable radio, which had, he had grabbed during the scuffle, at the deputy and caused a severe laceration on the deputy's forehead. While that was happening, Reuben stayed where he was to see if another officer was coming. While he was keeping watch, he heard something that sounded like, quote, somebody hit something, end quote. He turned and saw Senior and Junior, quote, fighting with the officer. Reuben testified that he saw Senior strike the officer with his knee. After seeing this, Reuben turned around and looked at the road. When he turned back around and took a few steps closer, he saw Deputy Markinet, quote, already on the floor. At some point during the scuffle, Deputy Markinet called for backup. There's conflicting evidence about what happened next. Mary testified at trial that as she was leaning over in the pickup, looking through the glove compartment for the vehicle's registration papers, she heard Michael say, freeze. She immediately sat up and saw him point the gun at Deputy Markinet while Junior shouted, quote, shoot him, shoot him. Although her view was somewhat limited because of the positioning of the vehicles, Mary testified that she saw Michael shoot the officer. The information provided by Michael in his first interview with investigators was pretty consistent with Mary's version of the shooting. Michael admitted that he held the deputy's gun on him for up to two or three minutes. During this time, the deputy lay on his back and, according to Michael, appeared to want to say, quote, just put it down. Uh, but when Senior and Junior shouted, shoot him, shoot him, Michael shot the deputy. At his second interview, Michael claimed that Junior shot the deputy, 
but then stated that he himself shot the deputy. Wait. So in the same interview, the he second said, interview. He said the junior shot him correct. and he shot him. He said the junior shot him and then he backpedaled and admitted that he so shot him. So we're pretty him. certain that Michael shot him from, okay. During his third interview and okay. at trial, however, Michael claimed that when Senior and Junior told him to shoot the deputy, he refused. Senior then took the gun and shot the deputy and handed the gun back to him, telling him to, quote, get rid of it. When questioned about the conflicting stories, Michael testified that during his first two interviews, quote, I don't know what I was thinking. I was confused. Ruben testified that even though he did not see anyone with Deputy Markinet's gun, he heard a loud command of shoot him and said it was Senior's voice. So why would Senior yell shoot him if, if Senior, Senior was the one with the gun? gun? No, agreed. Right. And so Mary, Ruben, and Michael's all story corroborate except for the very last. Except for the second or the last interview which, that Michael gave. Which is different. And obviously at trial, you're going to try and get yourself off by Correct. saying you didn't do it, which makes sense. Ruben also said he heard Junior say shoot him after that. So neither. So both brothers. Unless, unless Mary is the one that's got the gun and. Right, but Mary's still in the truck, <laughs> according everyone, to everybody. No, I know. Just, so Mary does not have the gun. Mary does not have the gun. Okay. <laughs> Clearly, Mary does not have the gun. Uh, Ruben testified that after, quote, kind of a little long while, quote, he heard the sound of an explosion like a gun going off. Um, a lot of what I found were from the Supreme Court filings um, on each of the brothers and I kind of just brought those together to create the singular narrative um, from each one of those. And according to junior Supreme Court hearing filings, um, at this point, Deputy Marconette was laying on his back and Michael was pointing the revolver down at him. Oh, so junior corroborates that Michael had the gun as well. Correct. Okay. Junior told police that Deputy Marconette had his hands in front of his face and was pleading, quote, oh, please don't, don't. Michael said that Deputy Marconette looked like he wanted to get up, and his expression seemed to say, just put it down, like I said earlier. Junior estimated that Deputy Marconette lay in this position for 18 seconds before the shot was fired. According to Michael, up to three minutes elapsed from the time he stole the weapon to the time Deputy Marconette was shot. So Michael still corroborates that he stole the gun. Correct. Okay, so that's still in the, yes. in the, in the washer of yes. gray water. Well, at this point... The only th there's not a question to anything. It's just Michael saying he, he didn't, didn't. Which okay. In his did final senior, testimony, did senior testify at all? Yes, senior was the one who um, senior said that he was the first one, the yes. first testifying. Okay, I don't. I must have just missed that. No, okay, all right, that makes sense. Actually, I think I think I get on that in a minute. Okay, sorry. Okay. No, no, no. Uh, junior then told uh, Ruben to drive. Oh. So as they escape in the yellow duster, uh, so Ruben went to the driver's side where he found the keys on the ground by Deputy Markinet's leg. He Ugh. picked up the keys, jumped over the deputy's body, and backed the duster into the sheriff's car. Can you imagine being a 15-year-old having to jump over a dead body? No, but I'm also, like, throughout a lot of my research, I was like, man, this poor Ruben, wrong time, wrong thing, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then I got to this point where he jumped over the deputy's body yeah. to get to the car. Like, I know he was an imminent threat because his brothers are terrifying, but still. Like... I, I Yeah. Uh, 
It's that whole. It's all that. And yeah. you're gonna get a little frustrated later. So okay. Right. Um, it's just I can't even fathom. That. No, I can't either. So he jumped over the deputy's body and backed the duster into the sheriff's car, and then he, Junior, oh, and Senior fled. Because the duster. Remember the car stuck. was well. No, the car. The Not, I mean, sheriff's car was placed so that neither could, could leave easily. Yeah. Uh, so then, Reuben, Junior, and Senior began walking. I'm sorry. So. Reuben Jr. and Sr. are now in the duster escaping. Wait, I thought Reuben ran the duster into the patrol car. Correct. To leave. He backed it up to get out and hit the sheriff's car car. and then took off. Gotcha. Okay. Um, Later, the duster had two blowouts of its tires. So Reuben Jr. and Sr. began walking through the desert uh, to escape. Sr. told Jr. and Reuben he couldn't go on and they need to keep going. Um, Michael and Mary fled in the pickup truck. Okay, I was going to say, where are Michael and Mary? They immediately picked up uh, Michael's brother, Tony Huerta, from work, and Michael told him, quote, I shot a cop today. End quote. So there's really not a question as to did Michael shoot the the officer. There's little to zero doubt at this point. Uh, After returning to the family's apartment, Michael hid the deputy's gun in some bushes. When Senior split with Junior and Reuben, he hitchhiked back to Phoenix. There he telephoned his friend, and the following is the conversation as told by the friend. Okay. Senior, we messed up. Friend, what do you mean by we messed up? Senior, me and the boys messed up. Friend, what do you mean? Senior, you remember that cop that was shot yesterday? Friend, yeah. Senior, we did it. Friend, what do you mean? Senior, yeah, we did it. We were parked by the canal. Some cop goes over, gives us a hard time, pushes me around, etc., till I fell, finally fell down. I was down. One of my boys did it. I think it was Michael, but I'm not sure. Okay. Right there, we already know there's a lie because he told- Senior never fell. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nobody at that scene ever said anything about Senior getting roughed up or rough no, housed to, to fall. Back, yeah, he put him he back in He literally just put him in the squad car, Yeah, which makes sense. You mean like you do when you're arresting somebody? Right, and when you, yeah. Yep. I mean, when you're arresting somebody, that's what um, you do. It is what it is. And then notice he says, I think it was Michael. But he also says he's not sure. Yeah, he said he but wasn't sure, but everyone else corroborates that it was Michael. So why did, like, right. that's, okay. So when backup officers arrived at the scene, they found Deputy Markinette's body. He had been shot once through the right eye, and he had a gash <gasps> on his left forehead. Oh, my God. Dirt was embedded in his buttocks, crotch, and leg areas of his trousers, and his metal nameplate was bent. The medical examiner determined that the deputy died from a gunshot to the head at close range. He also found powder burns on the deputy's hands, which indicated that his hands were in front of his face and the, when the gun was fired. They also found Ruben's identification card on the ground near the deputy's body. So in the way that he was shot and everything through the medical examiner's findings and such, there's no possibility that this was like, uh, well, accidental. There's no possibility that it was, this officer was coming at me. It was self-defense. It was this, it was that. There's no, and from what I found, nobody said any of that. But this just like everything it corroborates, scene corroborates that saying. it doesn't. Yeah. Well. Um, and the reason I made sure to mention that um, there was dirt embedded in his buttocks and crotch and leg area of his trousers and mentioned that senior need him is that somewhere in the 
uh, court findings, one of the appeals to the case is that there's no proof of that. There's no, nobody's senior saying he never did, but the other kids at the scene, like his kids at the scene said he did. So there's witness and there's testimony. also the physical evidence that he was in fact need or, or at the very least kicked in the crotch or buttocks area. Yeah. So, so like some, yeah. it just, yeah. Um, and then note again, they also found Ruben's identification card on the ground near the deputy's body. That's what told them who this, I mean, that's where gonna, this yeah, started. That's how essentially they figured out where it was going. Um, Junior and Ruben, after wandering in the desert for a time, went to a hospital and ended up turning themselves in. Oh, okay. Um, senior was found and arrested. Mary and Michael were arrested at a motel later the same evening. So they went home, dropped the gun, and then went to a hotel. They were later found at that hotel and arrested. Gotcha. Okay. Um, senior, Junior, and Michael were indicted on one count of first-degree murder, one count of aggravated robbery, and one count of kidnapping. Um, I, even being somebody who's a big fan of true crime, I questioned the robbery and I questioned the kidnapping because I was like, they didn't steal anything. They didn't take anything. And then I also was like, kidnapping, they didn't take him anywhere. Like, how's that kidnapping? I wonder if... Well, okay. I was thinking the gun. Okay. Because they took the gun from the premises. It was not their okay. their thing. And I think if you take anything from a police officer, it's considered robbery or taking without permission okay. kind of thing. So I saw that. I'm assuming kidnapping is Mary, stating that she was not wanting to be there, but they took her there. Okay. Um, I elaborate on all of those in a minute. Okay. But uh, Junior and Michael went to trial together first. And were found guilty on all counts. Junior and Michael. So the yes. oldest and the, the second oldest. The oldest and the middle brother. Who's Tony? Tony's just a cousin. He was somebody. Cousin. I yeah. thought you said brother for some reason. So I was like, they have another brother? No, actually, I think it does say brother. I think he's a brother. So he's Maybe one a stepbrother, of the, a brother. So must be, but it says a brother of, some, of one of them. But it's a brother. It's Michael's brother. So, so it'd be a brother. brother of one of the brothers. Yes. Okay. All right. Interesting. Um, but not involved in this particular situation. Correct. So. Um, so Junior and Michael went, like I said, Junior and Michael went to trial first, and they were found guilty on all court counts. They were tried together. So, okay. Um, same courtroom. Um, the aggravating circumstance making this first degree, and thereby letting um, the death penalty be something that's on the table, is that it was considered especially heinous and cruel because of the time frame. Because of the 18 seconds that he was laying on the ground um, before they shot that he him. Could have made the decision it was considered it. cruel. Yeah. Um, so the robbery charge, which the definition of aggravated robbery is committing robbery aided by one or more accomplices actually present. So that's what makes it an aggravated robbery as opposed to robbery. Okay. And then the defining robbery is taking any property of another from his person or immediate presence and against his will and threatening or using force against any person with intent either to coerce surrender of property or to prevent resistance to such person taking or retaining the property. That's a big long thing for saying if you remove something from somebody's hands without their robbery. permission without their permission or aggravating yeah. and then use that to try and keep yeah that makes yeah. sense it's robbery without coercion or so forth um so the evidence indicated that michael forcibly deprived the deputy of his gun uh while senior and junior were present and even encouraged it and that's where it came from aggravated robbery and robbery um the kidnapping 
was defined uh, kidnapping is defined as a person commits kidnapping by knowingly restraining another person with the intent to inflict death, physical injury, or a sexual offense on the victim or to otherwise aid in the commission of a felony. Oh, oh. Interesting. You don't have to leave anywhere to kidnap somebody. Makes sense to forcibly yeah, makes sense. It's to forcibly keep somebody in or in in confine of yeah, some sort. That makes sense. So by them restraining him to the ground and then using by using force, force of the gun yeah. they kidnapped him makes complete sense um that's such an interesting interpretation which i would never have thought right. of like i think no and that's what him. i found interesting as i was going through this that's so interesting um so michael was sentenced to death for the murder charge uh he was sentenced to 21 years in prison for kidnapping and 10 years for the robbery charge so 38 years uh, 38 years on top of the death the sentence. sentence. Yes. Uh, Junior was sentenced to What's, death. What state is this? Uh, Arizona. Arizona. Oh, I didn't realize Arizona uh, had the death penalty. Well, this was in 1988. Oh, okay. Junior was sentenced to death for the murder charge. Um, he was sentenced to life in prison for the kidnapping and 10 years for the robbery. Wait, how did... I'm not sure. How did Junior get life in prison, but Michael didn't? I'm not sure. Was it because he's the one who escalated it? Could be, but Michael's the one who shot him. That is true. That's true. But I guess shooting him has nothing to do with the kidnapping, and maybe because it was Junior's idea, because yeah. he had said, shoot I'm going to fight him. Or, yeah, and said, shoot him, shoot him. And, but, and, they, right. and people corroborated that process. Right. Makes sense. Okay. Um. So, and then he got 10 years for the robbery. Ruben also faced murder, aggravated assault, and kidnapping charges. He got murder? Yes. Interesting. But he entered into a plea agreement. And pleaded guilty to kidnapping charges in return for his testimony in Senior's case. It's interesting that he still got murder and had to corroborate, especially if he I mean, turned he didn't himself. get murder. But what I'm saying is he had to turn it, but they had to take murder off the table. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, Correct. They took it off the table. Which is interesting, though, because he could have, he turned himself in also, which is very interesting. Usually when you turn yourself in. So did Junior. Yeah, but Junior also contested the fact that he was, oh, that's true. I guess you're right. I mean, Ruben was just as involved in the murder had he not let his dad out. Would it maybe have not escalated as quickly as it did or correct where it was? That's Could true. there be a Agreed. different outcome? There might be. Agreed. Um, so um, Ruben was eventually sentenced to 10 years in prison for kidnapping. Okay. Um, for the kidnapping so charges. So he was 25. Something like that. Yeah. 26, 27. Um, senior was tried alone on his three counts. Um, so he had his own trial. Uh, senior got um, got an acquittal on the robbery count. So he was not charged for robbery. Well, he wasn't part of that process. He was in the back of a squad car. So. Um, but he was still tried for the murder and kidnapping charges. Um, the jury found Senior guilty on both charges, and the judge sentenced Senior to death as well as a consecutive term of 21 years for the kidnapping conviction. That's so interesting. That So Junior didn't get death. No, Junior got death. Oh, I didn't all three of them are sentenced to death. Oh, I didn't realize. That. Okay, I yes. missed that part. Okay. All three I, was, of them, I thought for some reason Junior. All did three not of get them death. were sentenced to death and then also got jail time. Okay, all right. Okay. okay. Um, so, from what I could find in in the aftermath, we're going to fast forward. So that was 1988. That was the trial. Yep. Um, their Supreme Court things came through in 1993. Um, everything was upheld through the Supreme Court. Oh, okay. Um, death penalty the kidnapping charges there was nothing disputed uh by the supreme court or changed by the supreme court um and then um fast forward senior died in prison at some point in the last 31 years i don't know when i could not find it i 
scoured. Um, Junior's death sentence was vacated in 2002 um, due to mitigating factors. So his age and his alcohol abuse. Okay. Because he was 20 years old and was an alcoholic. They were mitigating factors that could have contributed that to could his, have contributed to his mental state, and which could have right. Um, but it got commuted to life in prison. Um, and from what I gathered on a, on a Facebook post, I found because you know I'm a Facebook detective. Uh, Deputy Markinet's wife stated that Junior died last year. Oh, um, in prison. Oh, okay. Um, and that was in June of 2020. Wait, so he would have been. Well, he would have been 19. He was 20 years old. He would have been 50-something. 50 50-something. 50 That's mm-hmm. such an early age to die. I mean, but prison's a little bit different on all of us. So yeah. Uh, Michael's sentence was also vacated um, well, I think on the, the same of- mitigating factors because they were in the same court, court trial. trial. Okay. Um, and he is serving life in prison. Okay. He still lives, um, but he continues to be up for parole every six months or so. Um, and he, so far, has been denied every time. Uh, family of Deputy Marconet and fellow officers and friends continue to attend the parole hearings. Uh, the FOP, which is the Fraternal Order of Police chapter in Arizona, regularly shares when his parole hearings are in order for people to attend and to support him not receiving parole. Uh, and thus far, that has been successful. I don't even know if that's necessary. I don't even know if the parole board would consider it. Yeah, I mean, They might, but I think it's fantastic that even 30 years later, you still have people showing yeah. up to these parole hearings no, to make sure that no, he does No, 100%. That is exactly what it should be. Um, I also found a remembrance post from June of 2020 on the Maricopa County Sheriff's fa- uh, Department Facebook page um, in which somebody had commented about the parole and the fact that it comes up every time. And if you want to know when it is, here's how to find it. Come out and support us. I'm there every six months, this and that. Um, I believe it was an officer of some sort, but not anything. No named. Well, I mean, he had a name, but I don't have any reason to give the name. Um, And Deputy Markinet's wife commented on it, uh, thanking them for sharing this and bringing it to attention um, on that person's post about the parole. Gotcha. Okay. Um, So she's still actively. She said she had thought people had forgotten about her husband. And um, when I read that it, legit broke my heart oh yeah um and that's precisely what i want to do here because i want to make sure we're remembering the victims of senseless crimes no agreed um this being the most not the most by any stretch but it is is absolutely senseless there was no reason yeah others than they had committed crimes in their past that they were on not the run from but junior had skipped probation so so. he was on the run and why the dad couldn't just give his idea hang out there for a minute i'll never did the dad have any other pre-existing i couldn't find it okay i I i'm trying to think of a reason why you would be so i mean i'm sure well why you'd be so adamant to not show your id but in the 1980s they didn't even have internet it wasn't like he could run his id no, he would call it in. He would have called it in or something, yeah, and it may that may not have brought way. up anything from Texas right. at that point. No, no. Um, but like, and uh, this particular story was really uh, important to me because uh, just a little bit of history. My dad was a police officer yeah. for twenty years. He was Grandpa a detective Bob. for twenty years, and he was a probation officer for twenty years. So um a lot of history in law enforcement there. I have friends that are in law enforcement. 
We actually, um, we actually have quite a few friends that are police officers or that work in the police force, which is right. always very um, interesting to... And, and the people I know are, are stand-up people, and they're, they're respectful, and they, yeah. are, they are the right side of the law. Yeah. Um, they're the good side. And this, that is, is, this is unfortunately a, a shadow on... Um, but uh, Deputy Sheriff Vernon P. Marconet was 51 years old. Uh, he was a patrol officer from the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department for 19 years. He was only one year away from retirement. Uh, he had a wife, Mary Ann, and four children, Debbie, Teresa, David, and Ronald. Uh, he was often regarded as a practical joker and a funny guy. A quote I found in a newspaper article about his memorial was, quote, Vern was always there when you needed him. Each person said they could count on him, end quote. And that was shared by Deputy Ken uh, Gaberi, a uh, one-time patrol partner of Deputy Marconet. Uh, Deputy Bruce Omuth recalled him as, quote, a nature lover, nature lover who enjoyed camping. He felt more at home in nature than inside, and that's one of the reasons he liked to work on the road. Uh, end quote. He's memorialized in many ways that I found, um, especially on several Arizona law enforcement remembrance sites, as well as um, fallen officer sites throughout. Um, when you Google Vernon P. Marcotte, um, those are the sites that come up. And if you guys want to see links to any of these, <clears throat> you will have this on our uh, our Facebook page and our um our web and our website when we get a chance we'll show it in a reference section and about section for each yeah. of the episodes um just so you guys can try and find them we we really do want to open the eyes to these uh, i say horrific events some of the things we're going to cover probably won't be horrific um but a majority of them kind no, of are. but this there's, one is this there's, one is I mean, and, pretty, and there's and it's always said there's no such thing as a victimless crime yeah um, agreed. So there's always and that. and uh I just wanted to share some of the remembrance quotes that I found on these pages. People can comment on them and, and say these quotes for things. And um, one of them was the, the Arizona Law Enforcement Academy in Phoenix commemorates the sacrifice of Deputy Marconet with a 10K run by each academy class. Uh, the halfway point of the run is the spot where Defi Deputy Marconet's life ended, and each class stops there to leave flowers and pause in remembrance. It's a very touching, unique, and fitting tribute to our fallen brother, and that one was left anonymously. Um, and then another one I found... Um, was, quote, I stumbled across this site today and read the comments and reflections. I was overcome with emotions and tears while reading the posts about my father. What struck me the hardest was the guilt the gentleman who flagged him down and others felt. It's important for me to tell you that this was not your fault. What happened was caused by a murderous family with no regard for human life. I pray you find peace and for what it's worth, uh, know that you are forgiven. And that was Debbie Buckley, um, Vernon's daughter. And that was left in uh, July of 2020. Well, that's just beautiful. So that, and that, that is, uh, so it just tells me that it's still very active and he is still very much remembered yeah. because actually the gentleman who flagged them down found that post. And there were several posts by him on this remembrance site that I just didn't, I didn't want to share here. Well, and I, I wouldn't, um, I didn't even think about him. Like in my mind, I, he didn't even run across. Right. Even in the slightest. But again, another victim of a crime. Yeah, I mean, and to truly... Um, I mean, and not necessarily a victim who was killed, but a victim who guilt. had his life ruined. Um, oh, yeah. When you read the post that he had left, he struggled He struggled for many, many years before he even revealed that 
that's who he was. He testified and everything in that, but family members of his didn't know that he had witnessed this. And one of his daughter, his niece is actually um, part of the Phoenix police department. And she made the connection, talked to him and made the connection. And that's when he opened up and he started opening up on this site, um, leaving comments saying, I was the bystander, this and that and just saying he how he feels guilt and this and that so i thought debbie's comment on that like you said was really beautiful yeah um really well put and and i hope that that gentleman has gotten a chance to see that and realizes that it's not his it's not on him it's not his fault 100 um and then there's a lot of others from fellow officers partners sheriff's employees um expressing their love respect and gratitude for uh deputy mark markinette and uh, now I'm hoping he can he can be remembered here in in this uh, medium as well. Yeah, which we really that's what we're yeah. that's our goal. Yep. So um, that was the uh, story of Deputy Marconet and his unfortunate uh, death, and the family that just made impossibly poor choices. And I do have um, some photos of uh, Deputy Marconet that we'll be putting on our Instagram. Um, as well as a photo of uh, William Hurd Jr., uh, the oldest brother. Um, I could not, not that I, I mean, I did search because I, I want to have the background that you guys want to have as well, but I could not find photos of Ruben. I couldn't find photos of Michael. I couldn't find photos of Senior. There, Nothing. So, well, I mean, um, and that's. And, that and honestly, I'm fine with that. So <laughs> I will have um, the photos of William Hurd Jr., and then, of course, uh, the photos of Deputy uh, Marconet on our Instagram and Facebook and stuff like that. So thank you guys for tuning in. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at recipe and id so that is the at sign recipe and and id you can also find all of our episodes on itunes stitcher and spotify or any other podcast platform that you use you can also visit our website www.recipeandid.com where you'll find all of our episodes and recipes featured in the show there's also contact information if you'd like to reach out and suggest a topic so keep your bellies full and don't be a criminal (laughs) 